I see a world where robots can work hand in hand with people because people are inherently a really, really good at problem solving when robots are more doing repetitive tasks. So at Optimotive, we're trying to focus on automating those tasks that are repetitive, mundane, and even in some contexts dangerous uh, to allow those workers to be able to work on things that um, meaningfully get the construction site done and that they truly enjoy to do. You're listening to Making It in Ontario, the official podcast of the Trillium Network for Advanced Manufacturing. Hello and welcome to another episode of Making It in Ontario, the official podcast of the Trillium Network for Advanced Manufacturing. I'm your host, Nick Persichilli, and in this episode, Brendan and I take a drive out to Old Castle to chat with Scott Fairley, founder and CEO of Optimotive Technologies, Inc. We first met Scott and Optimotive at the Emerging Technologies Conference in Windsor, where Optimotive was displaying their Iris 2 Mark I autonomous ATV. It was orange and black with bright blue headlights and kind of hard to miss at the convention hall. And once again, shout out to our friends at Invest Windsor Essex for hosting a great event with great companies. Wendy Stark and team, if you're hearing this, did a great job. But for now, back to Scott. So let's get one thing clear. Scott and Optimotive do not sell autonomous ATV robots. So no, you can't buy one. What they are selling is the automation of data collection in remote, unpredictable, and often dangerous environments through the use of their robots. The design of the robot itself, as well as the box it comes in, made for a very interesting technical discussion about the tech they use on the device, what they can collect, and the various use cases for it. It's very cool stuff. As you'll learn in the episode, Scott is clearly passionate about what he's doing, about how he's doing it, and the impact he believes it will have. Check the timestamp for his thoughts on planned obsolescence and how it impacts their design and manufacturing philosophy, and you'll see what I mean. One issue he's particularly passionate about is the perception of his robots taking jobs away from people. This is emphatically not Scott's or Optimotive's goal in any way. As you'll hear in the episode, their goal is to automate the mundane, repetitive, and dangerous tasks within a job, not the job itself. During our chat, Brendan discussed his experiences hand-planting trees in northern Ontario and BC in his early 20s. Each tree planter was given a satchel full of saplings and told to go plant them. Once they ran out of saplings, they would need to walk back to the main camp area to get more. As they planted more trees, this walk became longer and longer. Now, during this walk, to and from the main camp, time and energy was wasted not planting trees. Now, if Brendan had an Iris 2 robot at the time, the robot could have been deployed to bring saplings to the planters, saving them time, energy, and improving overall productivity. Brendan's job would not have needed replacing in this example. In fact, it would have improved both the quality of his job and the quality of his work, because he could have planted more trees. That's the goal, removing the mundane and dangerous tasks from a job. So with that, here's Scott Fairley from Optimotive Technologies, Inc. on how they are enabling more and more companies to keep on making it in Ontario. And we're back in Windsor again, and I'm with Brendan again. Hello, Brendan. Hello. I guess, are we technically in Old Castle? Technically, we are in Old Castle. Correct. Yes, we are now in Old Castle, and we are speaking with some old friends. Yes, Brendan. Hello, hello. But we've also got a new friend with us today. Would you please introduce yourself? Hi, everybody. My name is Scott Fairley, the founder and CEO of Automotive Technologies. Nice to meet you. Well, meet you. We've actually, we met on the last time I was in Windsor, and we were at the Emerging Tech Conference. Yeah. So 
let's give a shout out to them once again. That was a great conference. Great I mean, opportunity it, for us. Great opportunity for startups. Yeah, it was. Uh, we learned a lot at that conference, and we walked away with this relationship here. So, Scott, for the people who weren't at the conference. Tell us a little bit about uh, what you guys do here. Yeah, so at Automotive Technologies, we focus on automation in what I like to describe as a muddy, dusty, or otherwise unpredictable environment. So think construction, mining, oil and gas, those environments that are really grueling to work in. So at Automotive, we build robots to automate tasks for customers in those environments. Customers look like multi-billion dollar construction firms, mining firms, things of that nature. And we produce robots to automate tasks for them. Now, we just got, for those of you who are, you know, aren't in the room with us, we just got a tour of your facility and the cool stuff you're doing. Tell us a little bit about, what, what was it, the Iris? Iris, yeah, so Iris is our primary flagship robot that we're using right now, and it is focused on the automation of data collection. To give, or to give you guys context who can't necessarily see these robots, uh, they're mid-size ATV-shaped uh, robots that we attach various sensors to the back of. Uh, it's bright orange, uh, humongous mud tires on it, and it runs around uh, on the construction sites and mining sites collecting different types of data for our customers. What data that's collected is really dependent on the customer case, but think 3D scanning, 360 photos, um, and even in some contexts, uh, inspection and things of that nature. Let's talk about some of the environments that you're looking to have these... Uh, these you say robots, but you, I remember we were joking around on the floor there. You're saying they're not robots. They are data collection instruments, right? <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, robots is an accurate description. There's an internal debate whether we call them rovers or things of that nature. Um, so, uh, yeah. But they are data collection tools. Correct. Yeah, so Iris is always focused as a data collection tool. So it runs around, it collects different types of data, and we provide that back to our customers as a service. So one of the things that I found interesting about, your, about Iris and the service is kind of the box it comes in sure absolutely. tell us a, bit, a little bit about the box absolutely so as a company in, in going through the testing phases and working with customers in those environments we realized that there's a tremendous amount of team time associated with operating robots it's not just a hey show up with a quote-unquote autonomous robot that can navigate around on its own there's the maintenance there's the management the where do you store it at nights on a construction site that might not necessarily be secure uh, given the expense of some of these robots, obviously. Uh, so we designed a system called Box that, uh, for lack of better terms, is almost like a doghouse for our robots to where it can live there. It's its base of operations, and we utilize it to help us operate our robotic platforms. It's got some pretty cool features on it. It's got uh, solar panels. We have put a SpaceX Starlink antenna on top of it, as well as it has onboard computers and things of that nature to give us the best possible firepower to go out and operate our robots for our customers. So it's kind of like a really large edge computer. Pretty much, right? Yeah, so it's got the compute power on board. That's one of the exciting things about it. So obviously, given the amount of data that we're collecting, there's a decent amount of processing power required to make it move around. And we can remove a lot of the processing power from our customer side of things and allow us to do it locally on the construction site with solar powers being completely off-grid. So, Scott, there's some, I mean, robots are, they've been around for a while now, but autonomous robots, they're, they're starting to gain some momentum. There's been some discussion about robots taking jobs from people now i know that that the, the discussion is a lot more complicated complicated complex a lot more layered than that you had touched on it on a little bit on the tour you're not basically you're not taking anyone's job tell us about precisely so at optimotive we're not taking people's jobs we focus on task automation so i like to describe to people think about the most boring mundane and repetitive part of any job that you've ever done imagine you could have a robot remove that task 
so you can focus on things that make you money. So in the context of our customers, it will allow team members, instead of running around collecting menial, repetitive data that is inherently valuable, it's just a very repetitive task. So imagine you give a robot go out and do that for them so that they can focus on things that actually get the construction site done and move things forward. And it is definitely a case of the tasks that we're attacking are definitely tasks that people don't like to do. And we heard this firsthand from some of the customers that we were deploying with, and specifically not just like the management teams, but even just the, the people on site, the day-to-day workers. When we show up obviously there's a lot of curiosity around the robots that we're building given their aesthetic and you don't really see these types of robots in these types of conditions at scale currently so naturally there's a lot of curiosity so we'd have people come up to us and say hey what does this robot do and we say oh we're here to collect x data we can't disclose what kind of data but uh we're here to collect this type of data like sweet we don't have to do this anymore like this is something that i don't have to go out and do like we would spend hours doing that i'm like exactly no for this job, you don't. In the future, the hope is that robots can go out and do this. So we're not looking to take people's livelihoods. I see a world where robots can work hand in hand with people because people are inherently a really, really good at problem solving when robots are more doing repetitive tasks. So at Optimotive, we're trying to focus on automating those tasks that are repetitive, mundane, and even in some contexts dangerous uh, to allow those workers to be able to work on things that um, meaningfully get the construction site done and that they truly enjoy to do. Are we at a point in time now where manufacturers are having a hard time finding people, mining companies are having a hard time finding people, oil and gas companies, construction companies, the grocery store, you name it, they're having a hard time finding people. So are these solutions, like is this not the kind of perfect time to be proposing these solutions and to have people get used to the, the, the kinds of problems that a robot like this can solve because we're not, automation today this minute is not there's there's plenty of jobs out there automations is there to solve a labor crunch rather than take anybody's job Absolutely. And honestly, this was not a strategic play on our part when we first started out to say, hey, there's going to be this tremendous labor shortage. But as we saw through COVID, people were staying home, the labor force shrunk, people were struggling to find uh, talent to be able to fill these jobs. And we heard this firsthand from customers. We were talking to customers about the specific tasks that our robots were going out and doing, and they were saying, we are struggling to keep people in these roles. It wasn't necessarily a problem of helping, helping struggling to find them, but it's about the retention side of things. They said they were constantly going through this churn of hire somebody, they don't like the job, they'd rather be in the office working on what the data um, and processing the data that's coming in. That was really where they wanted to stay. So they had this constant churnover rate where they're spending tons and tons of money on HR, and that's assuming that they could even find people. Again, the, the environments that we work in are not fun environments. It's definitely a, a case of it. Uh, it's It can be hot, it can be cold, there's mud, there's dust, you gotta be wearing full protective gear. It's not an environment that's fun. So we found that, and again, this was stumbled into, that there was a tremendous case on our side of things that by automating these jobs, they can have their team members focus on the more meaningful tasks and the high value tasks, again, that those people like doing. So the quality of life of the average construction worker could be higher using the power of automation. Before we flick the mics on, Brendan, you were talking about your experience planting trees. Now, I've heard this story a few times, but I think it's a very, I think it's a great example of automating the what did you call it the the not so fun tasks yeah the repetitive the laborious the the mundane tasks of the day-to-day lives and the the day-to-day jobs yeah Brendan, tell us about planting trees well when you're planting trees in northern ontario and central british columbia which you've done which i've done for many years although it was many years ago (laughs) um you, you you aim to spend as much time as you possibly can with trees in your saddlebags actually planting the trees because that's what makes you money. 
but you inevitably get stuck where you've planted all your trees so you have to go back and plant and and go to a roadside or go to a landing or meet up with someone to get more trees that's a part of a tree planter's job that they seldom want to do if there was a robot that made that more efficient that would allow them to spend more time planting trees more time making money more time being productive and would basically allow everybody to do more productive work so it's not automating the actual job it's automating the crappy things that you're not actually getting paid to do around the job and it's just one that's just one example but i thought it was really i mean that would be a godsend absolutely it's the chores right it's the chores of the it's the chores of the job that i think is really where there's ripe potential for automation as you mentioned it's the running back and forth to grab trees it's the run around and collect data it's the move things around it's a go sweep the floors type of thing it's the chores of the job that really don't push you forward and give you satisfaction it's like oh we have to draw straws to see who gets to go do this that's the prime use case for automation and customers operating in as i mentioned those muddy dusty or otherwise unpredictable environments have never had effective tools to be able to do this Obviously, uh, we're from Windsor, and we're very manufacturing heavy town. When you see the amount of automation that's happened in factory environments that are extremely predictable and the gains that they've had in the productivity of the workforce because of those, it's substantial. And customers operating in those environments that are unpredictable don't have any tools available to them, and especially at a cost point that they can put one on every single one of their job sites. So it's really our goal at Optimotive to try and realize those gains, whether it be moving uh, things around to help plant trees or whether it be um, helping out collect data on construction sites to be able to build those tools for those customers uh, to make them as effective as possible and try to share in the gain of automation that was had um, in a factory setting. So let's talk about Iris. Sure. This is the actual device itself. It's our product, yeah. Yeah, and uh, so that I, I saw it first at the conference. Bright blue lights, kind of hard to miss. Yeah, it's uh, like you said, it was a small, it's based on a small ATV. And tell us a little bit about, because I mean, that's how it starts. Obviously, it doesn't end that way. Tell us a little bit about some of the tech that you've put on it. Absolutely. So um, as mentioned, it's uh, based on an ATV chassis. Uh, so we take that fundamentally and strip it down to its bare componentry and start to build it from the ground up to be a data collection robot. So the process to get there obviously involves a, a decent amount of technology. So different types of computers, battery infrastructure, things of that nature all need to be taken into consideration. And from a manufacturing perspective, one of the things that we really lean into at Optimotive is 3D printing. We believe that our products should be rapidly iterated on, repairable, and low cost. So in order to achieve that, we've started to adopt as much 3D printing as possible to keep it iterating and keep it moving forward. So every time we're shipping out a robot, it's the best possible robot that we could design. So the 3D printing element has been a critical portion uh, and from a technology perspective to enable us to go out and build uh, these robots the way that we're building them. And I always tell our team, I don't know how we would have built this without the abilities of 3D printing. It would have cost us. 10x right um, so that's some of the technologies that we've been implementing into from a manufacturing perspective as far as iris itself from a product perspective um, it's electric it's battery powered so we're using lithium-ion battery chemistry um, in these really large packs that sit really low down on the vehicle to give us that good center of gravity and i almost like to describe it's like a gaming computer on wheels with its processing power capabilities and the amount of like power that we can pull from it is very much akin to a gaming computer uh, in that context so um, it's a very power dense vehicle it's got a lot of compute power on board to be able to, to process the different types of data and obviously the different types of streams of information we're taking from it. 
at Automotive, we fundamentally believe as well that cameras uh, are a better play than lasers. Um, just from a, uh, a cost perspective, LiDAR is one of those expensive technologies that really didn't um, work well with our cost structure. So we're looking at, um, we're probably using like stereoscopic vision, different types of cameras. So uh, for the listeners, Iris has three front-facing cameras, one on the back, two on the sides is the way that we're structuring it for the, for the future ones. And uh, using those different types of camera information, we can uh, confidently navigate around in these, uh, these environments. Expand a little bit on the fact that you're able to iterate it when it comes back. That that was the most fascinating thing where it's like it's the opposite of a cell phone where you're like, oh, it's the, it's now this thing's already 10 minutes old. Oh, it's obsolete. Obsolete, right? So yeah, Tell so, us about, tell yeah, us so, about that. Yeah, I hate planned obsolescence. You see that a lot in modern products today where they have a, a natural life cycle. So at Automotive Technologies, we offer robots as a service. So they go out, they perform tasks. At the end of the task and at the end of the engagement, robots come back to us. So in that period, when it comes back to us, it allows us to be iterating and producing the best possible robots uh, period, right? So obviously when the robots are in the field, we're going to be making design tweaks because there'll be that constant flow of them coming back and say, oh, this part didn't operate as expected. This part broke. This part didn't have the reliability. Hey, there's some new functionality here that a customer maybe asked us about. So using that process and hearing our customer demands and seeing the fleet out in the field, every time one comes back, we can iterate and add various sensors, uh, hardware changes, and new 3D printed componentry at a very fast turnaround time so that when we're shipping out that robot, it is the best possible robot that we could produce as a company. So once you've shipped it out, who is responsible for the robot? Uh, do you have to train someone to work it? How does that work? Yeah, so fundamentally as a company, we believe that the robot's uh, operation should be on us. So one of the things in talking to customers that we found was that a lot of them were um, not necessarily scared, but hesitant about taking on all this responsibility. As I mentioned earlier, customers operating in these environments have never seen automation tools like this. So to train their team to manage it, to train their team to maintain it and store it and things of that nature was a daunting proposition to them. So we believe at Automotive Technologies that it should be us managing the robots for our customers. So when we show up to a construction site, our team goes with, we set everything up, we make sure that everybody on site knows, hey, this is a robot, this is what it's going to be out and doing. But then at the end of the day, it's on us to ensure that it's operating in a safe and controlled manner, that it's doing the tasks that it needs to do. Because really at the end of the day, what we monetize on is the task it is performing. It is a task-based monetization system. Tell us a little bit about the history of this company, because you 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 strike me. You seem very young. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So we started Automotive right after I graduated high school. Um, I'm somebody who didn't necessarily take the traditional path in life, so didn't go to university, no post-secondary education, um, all self-taught from the ground up. So it was one of those things that we knew we wanted to go out and build things, and we'd start talking to customers and, and things of that nature. So Automotive as a company started in namesake in 2016. Um, through an iterative process, we found our direction that we're on today and realized that we had stumbled into something uh, quite meaningful with the little robots, and that's been our direction since uh, since 2018. I wish people could see the room we're working in right now because it's like we've got, we've got a rack of 3D printers right here, ready to go. We've got your two teammates right behind us. Say hello, guys. Hey. Hey. <laughs> yeah, they're working. They're working away. We are the last appointment of the day, and it's yep. just... Th th this facility, there's a lot of really cool stuff happening here, and okay. now it looks like you're looking to expand. We are. So this is one of the a blessing and a curse, uh, I would say, of, uh, of being a, a startup is that uh, the customer demand is getting to the point where we're struggling to keep up. So we've been taking on uh, outside financing from VCs down in California, and we're at that exciting phase where it's time to, to start to move things forward at a, a pace we always knew was possible. We just never had the, the financial firepower to do so. Um, so we're at the very limits of what our space can afford, and we're, we're starting to, to look onto greener pastures and expand this out because we need to start building 10, 20, 30, 40 robots as these customer demands start to pick up. So 
we're getting into that situation where uh, as a team we know we got this but it's it's getting scary and it's at that exciting uh, cliff moment where we're really starting to accelerate at uh, at a pace that we hadn't seen before wow good problems to have great problems to have this is what we plan for right like and anytime i pinch myself it's like wow like this is exactly what we wanted to to happen and to be able to go and pull off so it's uh yeah blessing and a curse so have you hit your head at all on because this is something that i've spoken with other manufacturers have you hit your head at all on finding available land uh finding space like just space to you know elbow room uh how easy is it to grow yeah, so uh, growing is uh, not particularly easy, I will say. It's it's definitely a lot of hurdles and a lot of hurdles that you wouldn't necessarily expect. Like when we were early starting out, it's like, oh, we're going to struggle to find money to be able to go and find space. Now it's flip-flopped where we have money, we can't find space, right? So uh, the manufacturing sector in Windsor is a very exciting one. It's a very tight-knit one, so it's very hard to, to grow out of it, I would say. But from a manufacturing perspective, uh, from our part, it's it's always been a case that it's easy to build prototypes. It's hard to go out and build lots of things. And that's really where things start to get interesting, and that's where I would totally agree with you um, from a manufacturing based perspective having that critical infrastructure here in Windsor in Ontario and in Canada will be an important part of our story moving forward as how do we actually go out and build loads of these little robots so in the current configuration there's growing pains there's gonna be growing pains wherever you are it doesn't matter right so uh, there is some uh, some mid-stage growing pains that we weren't necessarily expecting but through the support of local organizations and things of that nature uh, we're, we're working our way through them let's talk about scaling sure how are you looking to scale yeah, so from a scalability perspective, it's how can we pump out as many robots as possible at a, a quality that is acceptable, right? That's that's really where, from a scaling perspective, we're, we're moving towards. Uh, when you start looking at manufacturing facilities, it's not just building robots. we got to build the boxes. We have to be prototyping on new uh, equipment and new uh, methods of how we're going out and collecting data and performing tasks, right? So from a scalability perspective, it's about getting as many robots in as many hands of customers as possible uh, to the point where we can start hearing their feedback and then take it into that iteration machine, I guess you could call it. Uh, where we're consistently uh, to pumping out new ideas. So from a scalability perspective, it's go out, build as many robots as possible, give them as many hands as customers as possible. And how many are you looking to get? Like, are you looking at a thousand, a hundred, a million? Yeah. So in the current configuration, we're looking in the hundreds uh, for the next uh, next phases of things. It's really about and uh, the research items that we're working on right now is how can we go out and build hundreds of these things um, to the point where we can get them out in customers' hands. And then, uh, like I said, they go out in the field and they stay on site with customers, so we can constantly be churning out hundreds and hundreds of robots uh, at a time. Uh, so in the current configuration, we're on that ramp, I guess you could say, to getting towards that. And right now we're in the, the study period, I guess you could say, to where how can we go and build these as effectively as possible. What about partners? Did you work with any partners to get up and running, the academic, government? Yeah, so we've had uh, support from the local organizations like Invest Windsor Essex, WeTech Alliance, things of that nature. From a government perspective, uh, on the manufacturing side of things, uh, early days, I would say, uh, in the in the support from them. So it's an exciting period where we've proven ourselves out. So there's a lot more uh, legitimacy to be had in those conversations as we're starting to move forward. Um, so, so that being said, there has been local support from different government organizations and things of that nature. How, how unique, as far as you know, is that to Windsor having uh, that much support from Invest Windsor Essex. Shout out Invest Shout Windsor Essex. Essex. Yep. Uh, we Shout tech, out WeTech. Yeah. Shout, Shout out WeTech. Um, <laughs> because I mean that that is two strong organizations that are not consistently replicated in every part of the province or of the country. Um, can you speak to that? To your relationship? To the the importance? You know, full disclosure, we're pals with the yes, <laughs> with all them, sure <laughs> absolutely no so yeah. Uh, the, yeah the support from them has been uh, substantial at this point in time uh, i mean 
the reason that we made this connection with you guys is because we were invited to that trade show at the uh, the casino there, the Emerging Technologies Show. Um, so the support from them has been a critical part of our story moving forward. They've helped us secure space. They've helped us with talent scouting, uh, things of that nature. So having strong players backing you in, in situations like this is critical. Starting a company is one of the hardest things you can go out and do. Uh, so every ounce of support that you can get from any possible player is, uh, is a critical part, and they've been uh, an important part of our story to, to get to where we are today. Let's talk about talent acquisition. Where do you find talent? Yeah, so I will say that in our current configuration, we've been quite fortunate to be able to uh, not really run into talent issues per se, as far as finding people willing to work with us. From a, from a self-shadow perspective, we do work on some pretty exciting things, I will say. So anytime that we put job postings out, we do get loads and loads of applicants. Like, for example, for some of the mechanical engineering positions we put out, we get hundreds of applications. So the talent pool in the region is is quite strong. Uh, there's a lot of um, a lot of talents in the, the automation space, more so, again, around factory environments. But whenever they see mobile robots and things uh, that look like a, a, something from a movie scene, right, there's a lot of excitement around it. So from a talent uh, perspective, we have had a, a strong talent base here in Windsor that we've been able to tap into and uh, fortunate enough to say that we haven't had any true problems with uh, with finding the right people to work with. Scott, talk a little more about yourself. You said uh, right after high school, you knew exactly what you wanted to do. I wouldn't say exactly. So yeah, so after graduating high school, we we had some ideas surrounding mostly autonomous vehicles. So working in the autonomous vehicle space was really the, the early iterations of automotive. So we had put a focus on how can we operate autonomous vehicles in snow, rain, sleet, and other not so fun environments. And as a bunch of broke kids uh, who can't afford full-size vehicles to test on, the most natural fit that we could find was golf carts. So we went out and purchased golf carts and retrofitted them to be little test robot vehicles. Our early team uh, all had experience, myself included, in FIRST Robotics. Uh, so the FIRST Robotics teams that you'd play a part in in high school where you go out and solve challenges. So as young individuals, we had experience in robotics, had some ideas surrounding autonomous vehicles, and needed to go out and build test beds. So we chose the golf cart chassis, and as we started to iterate, we said, okay, the golf cart's not good enough. We need to get something that's a little bit more robust that we can show off, uh, which is where Iris, as in her current configuration, uh, was born, was as that test vehicle that we can go out and demonstrate and show uh, customers who were building autonomous vehicle technologies how their vehicles could operate in the snow and the rain and the sleet. So inadvertently, we had stumbled into a business case here where we'd built very robust and very capable off-road vehicles in the ATV chassis that could perform autonomously in those types of crappy environments. So we started floating around the idea of like, well, what if we could use these robots in a situation where they could be making money and be the product instead of what we build on top of them, which is really where the, the business case of Optimotive became today. When we started floating that general concept, we realized we stumbled into a business case that was 10, 100x bigger uh, than the initial iterations and concepts that we had built at Optimotive. Where did you learn how to do this? Self-taught, yeah. Just uh, had a I, idea and an understanding of where we wanted to go, and it was just purely self-taught from there to get to where we needed to be. So we knew like feature set and things like that, and like, ooh, it'd be cool if our robots could go and perform these tasks and do these things. Um, and then on my perspective, it was uh, working backwards from those end goals and figuring out what we need to do, who we need to hire, and, and things of that nature. So if anyone is looking to duplicate or replicate your experience, what books should they read? What TV shows should they watch? Yes. Should they participate in FIRST Robotics? They should participate in FIRST Robotics. Go FIRST Robotics. I would always implore anybody who has drive to just go out and try things. I think that's one thing that we're lacking in the traditional education systems is there's not enough trying. Like trying and going out and experimenting with things is very much an extracurricular thing like FIRST Robotics. So I'd always implore anybody, if you're passionate about something, just go and build things, iterate, work on things of that nature. I wouldn't say there's any like one podcast, book, 
speech TED talk that like was the aha moment. It was very much a collection of multiple to, to get me to where I am today. Um, and again, it was that trying, just, just go out and try. Everybody's scared to start and scared to go out and try things. So I'd always implore anybody to try as much as you can while you have the ability to do so. So whether it be first robotics in high school, whether it be rocket clubs in university or things of that nature, just go to try as much as you can and absorb it all and, and try to think about how you can apply those skills to something grander in your career as you uh, as you go and graduate or if you uh, you enter the workforce. So let's be clear, you're not selling robots. You're selling the data that they output. Correct. So we are task-based, right? So we, we automate tasks and the, the automation of the task is the product. It just so happens that by using robots is the fastest, cheapest, and the most effective way to go out and do these different types of tasks. So let's say we've got Nick's aggregates. Sure. I've got an aggregate company and I want to hire. I just found out okay, this is really cool stuff. I, I, I'm the kind of guy who used to do all those inspections myself. I was that kind of owner. They exist. They do. I know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so let's just say I'm that kind of owner, but I'm getting old and my legs don't work like they used to. All of a sudden I see this product. This looks fantastic. Mm -hmm. How much? Yeah, so from our pricing structure, we adopt a, a flat rate pricing. We are currently, this is not set in stone, but we're evaluating pricing around the $3,500 a month mark. So that includes maintenance, that includes uh, operating the vehicle, shipping the robots, all in included, $3,500 a month. That's not a lot. It's not a lot of money. So if you had one person working at about $22 an hour, taking the risk associated with being Insurance out in a risk. rugged environment. Yep. Yeah. That's $3,500 a month. That, that, yeah, that's a good calculus. That makes sense. That's where our margins make sense, right? And especially where a lot of these tasks that people um, would be going out and doing, they're dangerous, as you mentioned. There's insurance risk with them. So to give you the example, the aggregate space that we've been working in, to have a traditional surveying company go out and do this, they would be climbing piles. So you're climbing these extremely large piles of dirt. I don't know if you remember the, the commercials, the TV ads, where it's like, oh, don't climb aggregates because it's dangerous. You can sink into the piles and all those infomercials, right? Yep. Um, so that being said, these are very dangerous tasks that we are going out and automating. And as you mentioned, the, typically the people that are going out and doing this, it puts tremendous risk to them. So at our price point, it allows it to be faster, cheaper, and more effective, as well as we can do it more consistently because it's an automated robot doing it. Do you guys have any intentions of getting into uh, the nuclear maintenance space? So when looking at things that are of dangerous materials, it is on the roadmap. So in working in the stockpile and aggregate space, you can get stockpiles of dangerous things. So think lead um, materials that are toxic to be working with. So from our perspective, we're trying to avoid them for now, but it is an obvious use case for on our side of things to be able to put a robot into those dangerous environments instead of sending a human in. That's where I think there's a lot of growth to be had. From an organizational capacity, we aren't touching those just yet because we don't really have a clear read on how to maintain robots that are nuclear when they come back. Oh, right. uh, so as yeah. if they become radioactive, there's obviously a lot more complexities associated with that. So we are working in dangerous environments that could have lead and things like that, but that's a simple wash it down. So in the nuclear maintenance market, I think there's something to be had, but I would want our cost per unit from a robot perspective to be lower to the point that they're disposable and disposable in a way that could be environmentally sustainable. So we don't really have a read on that just yet, but it's one of the exciting things that we're looking at for the future. So you have a roadmap. We do. <laughs> um, even if it's not the details of the roadmap itself, what brought that exercise on? Why do you have a roadmap? What is a roadmap? Sure. What, what purpose does it serve? Uh, is it useful? Do you update it? 
Sure, absolutely we do. Yeah, it needs to be iterative. Uh, roadmap should never be set in stone and say, this is going to be a roadmap for the next five years because from a business perspective, we don't know what we're going to look like in five years with the growth that we've been having. So we, we thought of the roadmap was an important exercise on our side of things, given that we have all kinds of really crazy and cool ideas. And it needs to make sense in the broader scheme of what we're working towards as a business. I wish we were in a position where we could build every cool idea we've ever had, but practically we can't exactly do that. It has to be customer demand and things of that nature. As well as a lot of the technologies, as we've seen with Box, are additive. They're not just a, a standalone piece of technology. So some of the things that we're forecasting on the roadmap would require other elements of the puzzle to be done first. So that's why I think it's a critical element to have that rolling roadmap and be consistently kind of as a team collectively thinking about new ideas in the context of a grander um, trajectory and making sure that it all lines up again from a customer case perspective. Because again, we need to be providing the most value to our customers for this to make sense. Are, are you glad you've engaged in this road mapping exercise? Precisely. It was, yeah. When, I mean, I think any startup when they first uh, get their boots uh, in the mud, I guess you could say in our context, especially uh, when they get their, their first out there, there's a lot of confusion as far as what's being built and when by who and things of that nature. And you're kind of just sporadically trying ideas. So from us building out a roadmap was a, a natural step to a little bit more planned trajectory as far as what we're working towards from a technologies. Again, especially because we had the box and things that were overlapping in their capabilities. So so the roadmap was a, a critical management strategy on our side of things to ensure that everybody's on the same page and we're all building towards a, a common goal. And that common goal is very clearly stated for everybody to view. Did, did any one person or any one organization, was there anyone who said, hey, where's your roadmap? And you go, uh, where's our road? Yeah, not, the, I mean, some yeah. investors early days brought it up and we were, yeah, it wasn't exactly, didn't have a very good answer, I guess you could say. Um, as well as, yeah, we started tr stumbling over ourselves with the different things that we were working on where there was a conflict where it's like, okay, cool, we just spent six months building this thing, but this element on the roadmaps or on our grand list of things to do wasn't really put in a timeline perspective. So we had to like sit on something we just worked on for six months before it could get launched kind of a thing. So in that context, it was both uh, a head scratcher from the, some people asking us questions as well as uh, some of the uh, the development items kind of tripped over themselves there. So again, learning from failure is key. I think in any startup, I think a lot of people, as I mentioned earlier, are afraid to fail and are afraid to start. But as long as you can go out and learn from them, you can get through it. Like it's, it's not this tremendous thing that's going to blow up your business if one little thing goes wrong. So don't necessarily strive for perfection. And anytime there is some type of issue or something pops up, learn from it. I think that's a, a critical element of any startup that uh, yeah, not a lot of people take seriously. I'm going to turn this right to tech for a minute because you said something that's kind of stuck out in my brain and it had to do with, you've got vision cameras, mm -hmm. but you're steering away from LIDAR. You're not the only person to do that. Sure. Tell me a little bit about that decision. Purely a cost decision. Um, so from our perspective, as I mentioned, one of our key elements is that we need to keep our robots as low cost as possible because there's a direct correlation between our margins and how much we're charging for our robots, right? So LiDAR, while an interesting technology to us, didn't hit the cost point that we were satisfied with. And also there's a lot of complexities that go with it. Yeah, as humans, we don't have laser shooting out of our eyeballs to navigate around. Like using my two eyes, using stereoscopic vision, I can interpret the world around me. So it seems like more of a software problem. So we want to reduce the hardware cost as much as possible so we can have software updates as we continue to push through it. And camera systems had more low-hanging fruit in that nature. So while with a LiDAR system, you can get up and going quite fast and have a very detailed map of your environment, from a, a cost perspective, it made more sense to have some lower capabilities out of the gate, but slowly built towards having you know, greater capabilities than LiDAR could uh, could produce. Orange panels, blue yep. lights. Yep. 
really good color theory or something else? <laughs> <laughs> so from our perspective, uh, orange is one of the things that we naturally fell into. Um, working in these environments, obviously visibility is key. So when we first started off, we had a kind of a camo wrap similar to how automotive manufacturers would build prototypes where they wrap it in camo so you can't really see the imperfections and things of that nature. Um, we had load operators come up to us in the snow when we're operating a robot saying like, hey, I can't see this thing, man. Like this is going to be a, a potential risk to your robot. You might want to fix that. So at that point in time, we made the decision, okay, we're dumping, we're jumping into this with two feet here. We're going full orange. Uh, so from that perspective, the, the blue was adopted from previous color schemes, but the orange and blue did, uh, did end up going together nicely. That's Ontario text colors too. Uh, so <laughs> there you go. Right, right across, right across the wheel from each other. Right. So. <laughs> right. Yeah. Is it fair to say that you just, no one's like no one told you you couldn't do it and you didn't like no one you, you didn't know that you couldn't do it so you just did it is that kind of what happened more of a case of people told us it was impossible and i wanted to prove them wrong <laughs> yeah we, we've had nice. we've had the doubters we've had the people that says you know probably this isn't gonna work um or you might be crazy for thinking in this way and um we had this internal because, because naturally with the the tasks we're going at and performing there was that we are reducing human suffering in some elements. So there was almost that compelling case of we need to push forward. It's not even just about us anymore and like, oh, we like to work on cool robots and there might be a business case to make some money here. It was definitely a, a case of we could see that using robotic platforms like we were building, you can genuinely reduce human suffering, make people's lives better. So with that mindset, it almost was irrelevant what everybody and the doubters were saying to us because we knew we were onto something here. And we knew we could make people's lives tremendously better using these robotic platforms. So it was almost like a, the noise was irrelevant compared to the, to the reduction of suffering that we can work with. So a while back, I came down to Windsor and I got myself into a bit of trouble because I asked someone hey, where do I get the best Detroit-style pizza in, uh, around here? And they said, well, you get that in Detroit, okay? You get that in Detroit. Do you know what you get in Windsor? You get Windsor-style pizza. Correct. Please, for those of us who are not familiar with Windsor-style pizza, tell us what it is and what you think about Absolutely. it. Absolutely. So I'm, I'm uniquely qualified to discuss this matter because I did work for a pizzeria when we first, uh, to fund things along, we obviously nice. had to get jobs. Uh, so I did work for a pizzeria for a short amount of time. Um, so to give you the, the summary of Windsor pizza, number one, canned vegetables. So like canned mushrooms, canned vegetables, things of that nature, shredded pepperoni. It cannot be a circle. Shredded pepperoni. Shredded pepperoni. Secret sauce, eh? <laughs> so those two elements, I think, is enough to classify it as Windsor pizza, and everybody will go nuts for it. Hmm. Um, yes, we do have a unique pizza scene here, and it is. I would highly recommend it to anybody if you happen to be crossing through Windsor or staying in Windsor uh, to check out some different Windsor pizzerias. You got Capri Pizza, Naples. Uh, there's a, there's quite a, uh, a seasoned history of pizzerias here in Windsor, and uh, um, apparently it's unique. I didn't know it was unique until I started to travel a little bit more and realized that, oh, wow, we actually have stumbled onto something here in Windsor. We, we actually have some some quite good pizza. Shout out Galati Cheese Company. Yes, Galati yeah. Cheese, exactly. Yeah, we used to put the stickers on the boxes at Capri. So, yeah. That nice. Was <laughs> What's your favorite? Where do you go for pizza? I think Capri Pizza is the one for me. Nice. Uh, I would agree. Uh, Capri or Arcata. Those are like the two the two decent ones. So I um, uh, could highly recommend to anybody in the area. Brennan, do you have anything else to add? Just smart comments, but no. No, <laughs> no this, has been, this has been great. This has been great. Yeah, this has been fantastic. Scott, thank you for... Thanks for inviting us into your facility here. Thank you for showing us everything you're doing. Moving forward, stay in touch. Absolutely. Let's. Uh, I, I'm. I think Brendan and I are looking forward to helping you in any way we can. We'll buy, we'll buy you buy you a pie. 
There you go. Deal. <laughs> that's that's always our thing. Our investors said the same things. Like, hey, when you finish this application, we'll send you a pizza. So I guess that's our currency now. <laughs> what about delivering pizzas? Can the can your robots do that? Yeah. So we stay out of the uh, the delivery space and okay. mostly in the yeah. I think there's already a well seasoned. We actually know some people uh, in that space. Shout out Tiny Mile up in uh, they were up in Toronto for a while and nice. they have a little pink delivery robots. So I think there's a lot of uh, great companies in that space, but not a lot of great companies in the ones that we work in. What about a deli- what is, what's the instead of a delivery robot? What about a uh, I'm gonna go pick up your pizza robot fair yeah no there, I mean, there might be a business case there and yeah i'll recommend it to my uh, my people that have those companies <laughs> <laughs> maybe there'll be like a little fee on top of that for the idea i don't know yeah, there see. you go <laughs> fantastic scott thank you so much and to the gentlemen in the room here who have been so quiet thank you as well yeah, <laughs> thank you very much thank you